Chapter 9, Imagine. I belong to that group men don't think exists, single and satisfied. I'm mentioning that because there might be someone reading this and seeing that JJ, the Muse, and Ace are all happily married now while I'm still single, who thinks my relationship status bothers me. Someone may think that I interpret that turn of events as me being unwifeable, not chosen, left behind. But I never saw it that way. I had been married twice, proposed to four times. Both my ex-husbands had tried to get me back for years, and I viewed turning Ace down as a feather in my cap because I was a major reason a black family was now intact. Those were, and are, all wins. I felt privileged that I had met three men, each broken in his own way, and I had been as much a part of their healing journey as they were a part of mine. And this is where I will divulge one of my strongest beliefs. Relationships are where human beings grow. It is in that fulcrum that iron sharpens iron, that you see your mirror image, that you see the best and worst of yourself and you change and grow. So contrary to popular beliefs or the slew of memes on Facebook, Instagram, and everywhere else in the known universe, a relationship that does not end in marriage is not wasted time, wasted energy, or a wasted investment. That is such a limited view. I spent 17 years of my life married. I spent the last six years single. Guess where I grew the most? Guess where I published four books, started three businesses, was interviewed dozens of times, started a podcast that ranks in the top 10% globally. Guess when I got two national and two local teaching awards, a congressional award, and had the best sex of my life? Hint, not during either marriage. And the men that entered and left and sometimes returned to my life were pivotal to every one of those accomplishments. They supported me, encouraged me, pushed me, cheered for me, more than either of my husbands ever had. In fact, in my first marriage, when I tried to share just a minuscule view of the goals I had, my ex said, why can't you ever be satisfied? Why do you always want more? You just don't know how to be content. We had one car, a two-bedroom apartment, crappy credit, no savings, and together brought in less than $35,000. And he wanted me to be content? But I had attained that coveted status, married, wife, marriage material. Now I don't even converse with men who think like that. Although I love marriage and think it leads to some amazing power couples, it can also be its own dead end more often than people want to admit. It was now 2018. I was single, single once again, and reflecting, feeling grateful. I pinned this tribute to Ace. Impress me. I love when I go about my day and someone takes my breath away. He makes me smile and blush a bit, surprises me with style and wit, a flirt, a comment I admit, intelligence, sexy voice, that shit. It makes my mind a flutter, imagining us face to face and mingling. His hand in mine, his kiss, his kiss, my lips. My knees swoon, desire hits. An hour seems a minute long. My mind rehearses smooth love songs. I smile, demure and coquettish. I tease a little, anticipatory relish. His face replaces other sights. Jumping to mine, my heart in flight. Infatuated, intrigued, or less. Emotions swell and ebb, no rest. He can talk about anything, it seems. Eloquence, of course, my waking dream. Can seduce a little, not too much. Knows how to move forward, back, one touch. Says a mouthful, then those eyes, volumes speak. My glance replies, all is uncertain, that is true, but he came correct, and that is new. Been years since someone approached right, not too much, just make me bite. Put your bait out, back off then. State your intentions, I take them in. Tell me a little about yourself, then ask me out and prep yourself. On time, smelling good, a rose in hand, okay, I say, this is a man. Suggest a drink, I order, we dine. Go to a park and walk and find so much in common, chemistry. 
I like the way you look at me. I like the way you hold my hand. I know you want to be my man. I forgot completely what this was like. To be pursued feels strange and frightening. To know where I stand, no guess involved. Seems others lost this as relations evolved. You're reaching a buried part of me. I locked away for security. You unlock the door and toss the key. And she looks out tentatively and takes a step. Feels like a fall. You steady her, help her stand tall. She doesn't know what to do at all. Out of practice, heart install. Feels like learning to drive a stick. Gears crunching in my head. They stick. I ask for patience. You comply. I smile, breathe deeply, gasp a sigh. You impress me. That's no lie. Thank you. As I look at my life somewhat objectively, I know that my choices may seem strange. That poem, penned for a two-time felon, may rankle a few feathers, or it might be appreciated. Men seem so contradictory, and they call women that. They want us to build with them, give them a chance, see them as more than wallets, realize they are human and make mistakes, but when we do, we are often judged for giving the wrong men a chance. But Ace was no Jody living with mom, ambitionless. He was a man who had rebuilt his life, seen his errors, and actually changed for good. I was proud of him and felt grateful to have had him in my life. Since age 18, I'd been in relationships, two abstinent ones in college, three years each, then marriage, six years, then a year-long relationship, then married for 11 years, six months with JJ, FWB, 10 months with The Muse, 6 months with Harley, then 3 months with Ace, FWB, and of course Gatsby, FWB. I had never been alone for more than 6 months, not ever. Having a relationship, being in a relationship was normal to me. They took different forms, but I was always in one. I had been in so many that being single never scared me. Being alone was not something I ever considered as a possibility. It was like being hungry when you have a fridge or a pantry full of food. You're only hungry because you haven't made a plate yet. In this metaphor, the fridge and pantry are the men I remembered on dating apps, the ones who had inboxed me that I hadn't met or gotten to know. Spending the next nine months single was very interesting because it was a conscious choice to avoid even the possibility of meeting Mr. Wright. I went on dates eventually. You'll hear about them. But for the first time in my life, I didn't like what I remembered in the fridge, what was shelved in the pantry at all. I was actually willing to starve rather than eat. And that was new. At first, fearing there was fungus growing in the dating pantry and fridge was funny, then disturbing. Then for a moment, I got scared. But just for a moment, it was like seven days I fretted, cried, let the inner voice spout doom and gloom. At first, I avoided the negative predictions, but then I let them go wild. I let my imagination paint a dire picture of me dying alone, single forever, no dates, no sex, no love. And then I realized I could survive all that. A little sad, disappointed, but not regretful of a single choice. Intact. I wouldn't go back to a single X because of that fear. I literally heard the lyrics of Gloria Gaynor playing in my head. At first I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights thinking how love did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. After that, there was a calm and clarity I had never experienced before. Introspection. Turning away from noise to calm, finding pleasure in solitude, peace my haven, silence my balm, like a warm cocoon. I need nothing, but maybe a pillow, a blanket, or a well-worn book. A sunrise, sunset, a lakeside stroll, a song without a hook. 
and something beautiful to look at or taste lounge softly in the grass, make pictures of the clouds, or draw or write or even laugh, leaving the world behind, sublime, divine, unwind, escape the grind, and find me time. I liked being alone, although I really had no idea how to do it. I was now an empty nester, but I still cooked like I had a family to feed. Stopping that was amazing, liberating. I couldn't get used to sleeping in my bed alone. I still slept on one side and filled the other side with seven pillows. Plus, I had a boyfriend pillow wrapped around me. I was learning to adjust to being by myself. And I'd never felt so liberated, so comfortable in my own skin, so me. For the first time, not compromising or adapting to anyone's wants and needs. Plus, for the first time in my life, I wasn't scared of being smart. I'd heard that I was deep, intimidating, used too many big words. So many times that I hesitated at times before I spoke. I dumbed myself down. I watered down my conversations, especially when I was dating. With JJ and Harley, with my FWBs, I didn't have to, but meeting new men, yes, I did. Now I asked, what's the matter with being clever? I grew up reading tales of woe from philosopher savants of long ago who promised pure catastrophe if curious I chose to be. See here, Pandora and their Eve spread knowledge like a fire thief. Be punished for eternity. Don't brag on beauty. Snakes you'll find entwined in locks that make men blind. Don't boast on skill or end up trapped spinning a, a web to catch a gnat. Don't think that you can change your fate. Make Cassandra's hearers hesitate. Too clever. You may seal the fate of children too impulsive to wait. And when they soar too near the sun, your work like wax will melt and run and all your warnings be undone. So cleverness is not a shield, a banner on the battlefield. It is a target on one's back. For those with brilliance, get attacked, reduced to labor, killed, transformed. But that's how revolutions form, because if they alight one mind, they achieve success divine. But now I had a new love. Well, two of them, the page and the stage. Singleness was my new muse. I was writing new things, essays, and they were getting published. I had never seen myself as an essayist. I was a poet. That was it. Apparently not. And then I started performing. Stress made me do it. I couldn't work out enough to purge the stress. And I wasn't having sex, but the stage was a rush. The energy addictive, the interaction sensual, seductive, a give and take, just like lovemaking, better than lovemaking sometimes. I had a phone full of artistic contacts. I had a calendar full of open mics. I had an itinerary full of calls for submission. My life was full to bursting. Not a man in sight. And none were desired. Every date required rehashing my history, why I was single, what I was looking for, who I was, what I liked to do for fun. By this time, I had already said all that 45 times from 2014 to 2018. The idea of starting all over again was mind-numbing. Performing was mind-stimulating. I definitely had made my choice. I knew from past experience that it generally took nine days to find a guy I wanted to see, and that just seemed like a tall order, a Herculean task. Why was I single? I didn't even want to begin the process. Text, call, meet, repeat. Nope, not now, maybe not ever. I loved men. I mean, everything about them. Their look, smell, taste, touch, energy. I loved men. I was just tired. And performing was my Red Bull. But let's not get it wrong. I was never and will never be a woman that says, I don't need a man. I may not need my own individual man, one committed to me romantically. Still, I need male energy in my life. I can feel myself getting hard, brittle, rough around the edges without it sharpening like a stone. The Rose Doctrine 
doesn't account for the fact that male energy stimulates femininity, at least in me. I'm softest when I interact with men, even platonically. My nurturer is called forth. Just like when I gave birth, my nipples spouted twin fountains whenever my infants cried. Something warm, wholesome, and generous unfurls inside of me in the presence of male energy. As Terry McMillan so aptly put it, I held my breath without male energy, waiting to exhale. And then he, they, entered. A text, a call, a message, a flirt from someone I knew who knew me, saw me, heard me, valued me. And then it happened. Breath released. Body relaxed. The exhale. The flow of mother's milk. The clink, clink, clink of a dozen locks opening in unison as I unwound, relaxed, unclenched. And all it took sometimes was a phone call. So, I never would say I don't need a man. I called San Antonio. By this time, I had another buddy in Indianapolis, one in Louisiana and one in New Jersey. I called the last three my new three musketeers. I could talk and get that bass in my ear, flirt a little, talk about my day. For now, that was good enough. More than enough. No man, not even the prospect of Mr. Wright being somewhere out there, was enough to make me want to text, call, meet, repeat in person. Not even a little bit. And the bonus now? The four men I converse with were my intellectual harem. They stimulated my brain, my creativity, my possibilities. They were entrepreneurs, everyone. Black, successful. And the last thing they found intimidating or too deep was a talented woman exploring her intellectual gifts. If the song in my heart was a piano concerto, they were tuning my piano to pitch perfect status. I could hear my voice stronger than ever before. I was single, single, but I felt invincible and curious. I'd reopened my POF account, but never checked it because of the car accident when my son totaled my car. I logged on and looked in my inbox, full. Okay, let's start at the beginning. My first hit was a minister. He announced this in the greeting he sent me. Hmm, laugh out loud, number one. And when I told him we weren't compatible based on that and everything else in his profile, he responded, what could be more compatible than having Christ? Uh, a million things. LOL number two. I have nothing against Christians. I was one for 35 years of my life, but it shocks men to learn that it is not a feather in their cap in my eyes. I'm neutral. Nothing gained, nothing lost. I think for some men, this is more disturbing to them than anything else I could say about myself. Shrug. It is what it is. I like dating men who consider themselves spiritual, who believe in God and pray versus those who claim Christianity or Islam. Why? Because they're stronger. They don't make excuses like, God's not done with me yet, to cover their own failings. They don't think prayer and patience will solve everything. They're so much more confident, assertive, proactive, and rational. Faith seems like a crutch, not a strengthener for too many men. It's okay I don't have a job, a car, that I still live with mom or never finish school because I love God. And he's going to work everything out for my good, they say. All I've got to do is have faith. And they think any woman who doesn't understand that must not really be a good Christian Proverbs 31 woman. Well, I guess I'm not that type of woman. I checked inbox two. Illiterate. Lovely profile you in here. Why don't dating sites have a simple test? Type two complete sentences that make sense. If you can't pass it, you can't join. I logged off. This was why I had stopped dealing with dating sites last time. They made my blood pressure rise. I had joined a few Facebook singles groups, though. They were funny, often filled with jaded, bitter men and women, people I didn't want to be like. So much blame floating around, so much staunch views that there was only one way, their way, to date, to interact with the opposite sex, to live. I'd spent most of my life in those boxes following rigid doctrines that sought to control a world that can't be controlled. I was done believing there was some magic guide, some rule book, handbook, 10 commandments of dating that would guarantee success. Life was about living, getting up every day 
and embracing the uncertainty with relish, anticipation, and gusto. So many seemed driven by fear. I recognized that intimately. I had feared my sex drive once. Feared I'd be one of those women, fallen, impure, no rose petals left. I feared rejection, judgment, ridicule, being used, taken for granted, overlooked. My fear never gained me one thing. Running from all that led me right to situations that caused all of the above. What you resist persists. What you focus on, you attract. Now, I focused on love, laughter, joy, peace, the page, the stage, and all that was coming in abundance. I remembered playing volleyball for six years, my coach saying, look where you want the ball to go, then serve. I was looking. I was serving. I was taking control of the direction of my life. My focus no longer fixated on what I lacked, a relationship, a partner, but falling in love with what I had, time, choice, freedom, me. Creative, intellectual, Growing, changing me. I had me beholden to no one, kowtowing to nothing, deciding on goals and smashing them, choosing a path and dancing down it to the beat of the drum in my soul. And that music, which once was silent, was loud enough to drown out every other voice. I remember scandalizing a male member of one of those Facebook groups by responding to a post asking what group members slept in with one word, nothing. He was flustered, sputtering long paragraphs on why that was improper. I smiled. The image of me bare skin next to 1,000 thread count Egyptian cotton lotion, smelling good entwined in soft sheets and freely walking around my bedroom, air bathing, air conditioning caressing my body, luxurious, sensual. All this proved too much for a man who felt more comfortable with Little house on the prairie nightgowns buttoned right under the chin. Long sleeves even in summer and hemlines almost touching the ground. Why was so much energy spent by men trying to keep women tame, controlled and covered, even in the privacy of our own homes where no one could see us? Why was so much energy spent telling us that we were thought too much, wanted too much, were too much? It was mind-boggling. And for the first time, insulting. Looking back to the muse and Harley and my two marriages suddenly felt like looking back at a stranger. Who was that girl? That woman? She wasn't me. Not anymore. My social media reflected that. I had gone from one page on Facebook with 600 friends to two pages with thousands. I also opened an Instagram account. More people knew me by my stage name than my real name. I was interested in seeing what this new me would do, where she would go, and where the less traveled road would lead. First, it led me to my sons. The twins had both left home at my request. Both were back. It was nice having them under my roof again. I knew they were cared for, safe. No matter how old your kids get, you feel that way as a parent. Our road led to a pretty dark place in April of that year, an emergency room, emergency surgery, Days of my son hovering between life and death. He'd been shot. My ex-husbands came to the hospital. And my sister, my other son, my son's girlfriend, and my grandson. I didn't leave for five days. I don't know what it's like to lose a family member to a senseless shooting. I do know what it's like to come close. To know that had the bullet that hit my son been in a different place, he could have died or been paralyzed. To know that... Had he made it to the hospital 15 minutes later, he would have bled out. To know that he could have lived his life with a colostomy bag unable to walk. Instead, thanks to God, he is healing. His son has a father. It's been three years and six months and every day is a little better. But back then, every day was a struggle. My son had a long, painful physical recovery and an even longer, more painful mental and emotional recovery. I think he still has PTSD, though I did get him some counseling. My other son needed counseling as well. As for me, I had four counselors. I went to one once a week, but had the others in my phone, so I always had one available. The memories of that time are few. My mind didn't seem to want to focus and store what was happening. One night, 
I had the craziest dream ever. All I did was cry, all the unshed tears inside. Wants, needs, what coulda, shoulda, mighta been, loves lost, lives wasted, money spent to ease the pain, every stupid decision, every cruel turn of events, every disappointment. Like a dam breaking, unstoppable, I cried for three hours in that dream. I can probably count on both hands the times I've cried in reality, name incidents off like bullet points on a grocery list. Still, these tears that never stained my pillow felt endless, like circling the Milky Way, rounding the Big Dipper, and stopping off at Pluto like they'd become my life's work and nothing would ever be done till they were spent. I don't think I'd ever felt so alone as when I was awakened hastily, summoned before daylight from three hours of sleep morning to help my son. And I pulled on my robe, dried face, and went to work. Because that's what women do, what mothers do, so often. We bear our griefs alone in silence, releasing them only in prayer and meditation because our work must go on. It wasn't what almost happened that was so bad, the near death. It was the after effects. My son was a black man in America. He had struggled having no dad after the divorce. He'd looked for a father figure in the wrong places, gotten attached to my second husband, and then went back to trying to define his manhood with the wrong crowd after the divorce. He felt betrayed, alone, and in so much pain. Bones had shattered inside. He had to walk with a walker for two months, a cane for another month, and when the pain meds weren't working fast enough, he was a different person, an angry, bitter, threatening, scary person. Those three months he bounced around, partly because when he was on drugs, he wasn't himself. There was no talking to him high, no calming him down, no controlling him. I thought I'd lost him, that his brother and I had lost him, but month four brought a change. It was almost like a switch flipped and life went back to normal. To someone who didn't experience it, I can't explain it. But after 90 plus days, he was sane, safe, stable, and back home with me. But we were all scarred. I didn't know how much till years later, but we'll get to that in an upcoming chapter. I went through this period alone, mostly. I had a couple of talks with Gatsby, chats with San Antonio and my intellectual harem, and a new friend. Date 46. Mo. We'd met on Facebook. In some groups, I'd posted about missing my muse. And he responded. He knew exactly what I was talking about. I'm a writer and a poet. San Antonio is a professional musician. Mo was also a writer. We discuss how we see connection with the opposite sex differently from many others. Creative types are generally at their best when they're inspired. And so he and I have acquaintances, very few friends, and at our most creative, we have a muse, that person who inspires us and their conversation and presence keep us sparked. We are whole and complete without that person, but we struggle creatively. We are also intensely passionate and sexual. So in dating, we may sift through quantity to get to quality because finding that muse is an undeniable, unignorable motivation. In my search for a muse, much time has been wasted, but the alternative is much worse. Artists create beauty, but they also generally experience the world more deeply. Thus, they struggle with depression, addictive tendencies, being workaholics, etc. Searching and finally finding a muse may be time-consuming. Still, compared to the alternatives, it often seems like the healthiest way to deal with the world we live in. He was the closest thing I'd had to a muse since 2016. He was the first friend I called from the hospital. I was freaking out. I couldn't calm down. I was totally losing my shit. And I called him and he talked to me for hours, just talking, calming me, listening, praying, sending positive energy. I got off the phone at peace. Once he'd said, I'd love to see you, but I'm scheduled all over the country for the next six months. I replied, your words have power. Ask the universe to make it so and watch the world bend to your will. At the end of the month, he was the one at my door who changed the locks on my house because I didn't want my son to get in without me being there. It wasn't a date per se. We didn't go anywhere. We sat on my sofa, drank wine, and talked after the lock change. And no, we didn't have sex. We just held each other, 
and he listened to me talk. For those four months, I was in a different headspace. Looking back on it now, it's hard to describe how I was this grieving thing one day, and the next I was back to normal. And when I first started writing this chapter, I had no explanation, but now I do. See, as I write to you, I stop and read my journals. So far, I've read the first two of nine. Those covered years 1998 to 2000. I figured I should start with the oldest journal. Who knew what I might uncover that might be pertinent to explain this journey? And voila, I found an explanation. There were three pages of records that I didn't remember writing or even happening. A catalog of abuse after my divorce was filed against my first husband. And then in the following pages, nothing related to that. I turn the page, literally. It was almost as if all those things never took place. So my abusive marriage had trained me to just move on when the crisis was over, to just go back to normal. But at least this time, I was getting counseling during that whole four months. But after four months, I stopped. And after four months being single, single, I had to deal with the hunger. Nails on chalkboard, nerves on edge, breathing shallow, tense and stress. I know the problem. It's clear to see. Know the solution. That can't be. Being single has its perks, but sex is rarely in the works. Those with great skills are jerks instead. Those with great hearts suck in bed. Can't call the former seems demeaning. Can't call the latter self-defeating. Just long for love and sex. It's true. Wasting my time. Got much to do. But treading water can't think too well, sometimes rambling on as well. My mind is clearer when I'm sated. I function better, activated. Hate the current option scene. Need one worth something nice and clean. Take a deep breath. Maybe work out. Try to remember what life's about. But when I'm hungry, ravenous more, it's hard to act normal. Emotions poor. Long overdue, my patience short my tolerance level on abort. Maybe tomorrow will be a better day, but not unless my minx can play. Gel. That's it. I'm done. I must admit, tried seven dating sites, not one worse shit. And at the risk of being politically incorrect or earning the ire of the know your worth sect, I think I'm ready to just admit I think I'm done looking for him. I'll take a gel that fits. What's a gel? I do declare a good enough lover and maybe a spare. Who am I joking? The first is hard enough to find. I'm not talking fantasies of love sublime, of toes curled in bliss, eyes rolled back in my head. No, just someone with a clue what to do in bed. A little stamina would be nice. Semi-hardness once or twice. Some mental stimulation is needed, true, and a few passionate kisses, caresses will do. Seems a very easy list to fill, shrugs. Well, it seemed that way for real. I used to consider myself a savant, sensual, skilled, just elegant. But singleness has had its toll. I think I'm jaded heart and soul. Lose interest in conversations, record speed. Keep my hormones on ice till my knees get weak. Don't know what to say, text, or confess. Sometimes I'm just fantasizing him undressed. But I've had enough lemons to be somewhat stressed when the day of reckoning comes no less. I've stopped expecting much, that seems wise. But still it would be a welcome surprise to find a gel between my thighs. Even though I was horny and feeling beyond ready for casual sex, it's one thing thinking it. A whole other thing to actually do it. And whenever I would venture onto tango or dating apps, the men reaching out to me made me turn right back around. First, it was this new word I saw all over the place. Drama. Men didn't want a woman who had drama in her life. What the hell did that mean? I was probably the least dramatic person I knew. I was nicknamed Zen for Christ's sake. Unflappable, stoic even. But I had two kids in their 20s finding themselves and finding car wrecks, like the one that totaled my car, tickets from speeding and no insurance, on and off relationships with their girlfriends, and most recently, a whole near-death experience and a close call with drug dependency. 
Was that drama or just life? Did that not matter because my kids were grown? How the fuck should I know? It just made my head hurt. And then there were the dick pics. I constantly got them in my DM on Facebook and so much on Tango. I deleted the app. There was something about being deluged with them daily that made me leery of the judgment of all men. Why send a stranger a nude pic? What is that supposed to mean? Don't these men understanding that sending a pic of their dicks is like sending a pic of an oven? Does it work? Do you know how to use it? Let me just say that both my ex-husband and the muse could have sent beautiful dick pics, as could Harley, though none of them was the type. They might have been sued for false advertising had they been. So they were the first thing that came to my mind when I saw any dick pic. Length, girth, color, all great. Functionality and or skill to implement totally lacking was what I pretty much assumed. Thirdly, being on my own away from the church had finally allowed the questions that I always had to take center stage. And that also made me question dating. My first husband had informed me that I had been the problem in our relationship around this time. I hadn't stayed in my place. I hadn't understood that as a man, he couldn't cheat. That cheating was a new concept. Hadn't Solomon had 300 wives and 600 concubines? Hadn't almost every patriarch had more than one wife? Yes. Old Testament versus New Testament. Well, he wasn't a deacon or a pastor, therefore he didn't have to have one wife. His logic seemed crazy, but I actually couldn't dispute it, not from the Bible. A holy book that seemed to have two sets of rules, one for men, one for women. That was a problem. Then there was my second husband in the muse. Both men felt sex was an activity of the flesh, even in marriage, an activity born of lust that needed to be monitored, controlled, and treated, if not as a sin, as a gateway to it. That was also a belief kind of hard to dispute. There was the Song of Solomon and certain Psalms that glorified married love. Still, it was interesting to find out when I researched that several church leaders never wanted that book, those Psalms, as part of the Bible. They wanted them relegated to the dung heap like the many other books that had not made the cut. The history of the church and the Bible was also the most sordid tale ever told. Mass murder, burning of heretical text, excommunication, the Spanish Inquisition, and devices of torture. Looking for God, I seemed to find the devil at every juncture, alive and well and in the church and its leadership. So I never went back to the church, except for weddings, christenings, funerals, and there have been a lot of those. Some I had not attended because they were out of state. 2013, my dad and my second husband's mother and father, my in-laws had passed. In 2017, my grandparents passed and my first husband's parents, my first in-laws. Seven deaths in four years. My kids suffered. I suffered. We grieved. We pushed through. At funerals, ministers and mourners extol how your loved one is not that body, not in the grave, but in a better place. We all acknowledge that we are not bodies, but souls, spirits, consciousness. Then the following Sunday rolls around, and suddenly not only are you your body and at war with it, but God is personified, male, white, with all the human characteristics, judgment, jealousy, and the need for you to fear him. The more death I experienced, the more those ideas rang false. I am consciousness. God is the ultimate consciousness, not a white-haired replica of Zeus. The more research I did, the more I realized the echoes of mythology in the Bible and the depictions of God and Christ. And I did a lot of research. I had started in high school when I read the Bible all the way through seven times. In college, I'd enrolled in seminary. I really don't recommend doing that if you want to silence questions about God and religion. After a year, I had triple the questions and half the faith in traditional Christianity. I'd spent 1994 to 2017 reading the history of religion, the Bible, the church. And by 2018, I'd exhausted whole sections of college libraries. There was nothing left to research. 
If I wanted to experience the wind or sun or moon, I wouldn't go inside a building and look at images of them, hear a person talk about them, read about them. I would go outside and experience them. Prayer, meditation, nature became my churches. Quiet, intimate, one-on-one. And when I looked at dating profiles now, I didn't want to see good Christian man, God-fearing. So that narrowed my focus to spiritual, non-religious, new age, or many other labels I no longer remember. Any man who expected me to be church-going would be sorely disappointed. I was no longer that girl. I was now the performer, regularly. So now it's time to introduce Baba. Baba Fanat, a drummer, but much more. Old enough to be my father and not a romantic interest at all. I don't know where to put him in my book because I'm not sure when we met, but this was the year that I finally accepted his invitation to come to his class at the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Conversations in African Culture and History. Whether he had invited me for months or years, I couldn't tell you. We performed together a lot, unplanned. Open mics are that way. Running into people and taking the stage together often happen with poets and musicians. He was the only one who ever took the casual encounter and followed up with calls and texts. I'd never been to a shrine and still had enough Christianity in me to find the idea sacrilegious at first, but finally I went and I never left. I drove into the parking lot, got out of my car and stopped mid-step. As a performer, I know energy. It swells in the crowd. It dies off and is revived. It energizes the performers in the audience. It is a living, breathing thing. I had never felt energy in a parking lot. Delicious, pure, like stepping into a crystal waterfall but not getting wet. Cleansing, refreshing, renewing, invigorating. What was this place? The energy got stronger as I walked across this massive parking lot divided in two by a median. There was a handicapped ramp to the left of the steps entering the building. Although I knew it was for wheelchairs, I had a distinct impression that anyone who rolled up that ramp might stand up and walk. I opened the front door almost hesitantly. There were two tables in the vestibule on either side. One was covered with business cards, community newspapers, and flyers. The other was empty. An ad for the Buy Black Market first and third Saturdays was plastered on the inner door. I opened the second door and walked into an expansive room. A counter with African books in a glass case was to my right. To my left, African sculptures, masks, tapestries covered every inch of the walls. Several classrooms, doors closed, could be seen across the room in a slightly sunken area that one had to descend three steps to get to. Every person I'd ever lost felt like they were here. The energy of a thousand ancestors. I'd never been in a mosque before, and this was not one, but I suddenly understood how a room could be filled with hundreds of people kneeling on prayer rugs, doing obeisance, their prayers one unified voice to the Almighty. I hadn't known I was homesick for this place of connection, for the presence of those I had lost, but when I walked in this shrine, that was the right word for it, I realized, it suddenly felt like I had never lost a loved one. Not my father, grandparents, or in-laws. Those seven people felt there, loving, lifting, encouraging me. I wanted to drop there and offer thanksgiving, lift my hands, lift my eyes, and kneel to the splendor of my culture and those who had come before me, carrying it in their heads, hearts, hands. Their souls and voices were the hum in the air, an almost audible welcome home. Tears welled in my eyes, and no one had said a word to me. Someone walked up and ushered me into Baba's class. I walked into classroom four. It was a library with half the room empty. The front had a map of Africa, more sculptures and tapestries, a drum set in the center of a circle, a small table next to it with a bowl of water and a small empty woven basket, an offering receptacle. He smiled at me, gestured to an empty chair. Our eyes met briefly, pausing. I registered he knew what I felt. I knew then that he'd known when he invited me that I would feel just that. Class begin. There is not enough space to explain this class. That would be a whole book in itself. Suffice it to say this. Close your eyes. Picture yourself in Africa on a plane. A griot sits cross-legged, 
in a long robe, his back resting on a cassava tree. Like all his students, you were sitting on the ground before him. His voice rises and falls, explaining the origins of the universe, your people, your place in the world, your duties to the creator, your tribe, the larger world. He explains the world outside your tribe, the toxic attitudes you will face, and how to overcome them. There are no questions in your mind. As soon as they are formed, those are the next answers that pour from his mouth. Every word spoken feels not like language, but like sustenance. Chunks of mango, slivers of banana, a handful of almonds, barley cakes with honey, and the crispest, sweetest apple juice you've ever tasted to wash it all down. You eat, nourished. You drink, hydrated. You rise at the end, hug him and your classmates, give or don't give an offering, and feel reborn. That was class. I never knew that I'd wondered what it might have been like if Wakanda were real, if the colonizers had never invaded, if there were a piece of African culture left pristine, untouched. But in the shrine, in that classroom especially, it was our own Wakanda. I was there every chance I had. I tried to explain the experience to others, but I don't think I ever did it justice until now. 2018, writing, performing, the shrine, the class were the pillars of my new life. So when I went back to dating sites, the contrast was even starker than it had been previously, and the ability to walk away quickly was even more pronounced. Before, I'd had my four questions as sifters, but now I was much more attuned to energy. How did I feel when I encountered his voice, his presence? What was his energy like? How did we vibe? I woke up and went to bed listening to affirmations. I journaled about my hopes and dreams like I had when I first got married. I was beginning to walk, think, live, and breathe positivity. In my personal life, I had never been happier. At work, I had never been more stressed. So I protected my personal life and energy with a tiger-like ferocity. No man would take this place of peace from me that had taken my whole life to achieve. Earlier in this chapter, I'd explained how I had me, mentally, emotionally, what the shrine in the class gave me was me, culturally and spiritually. There was no doctrine, no religion, no name for this belief system. There was the creator, the tribe, and me. There was no war between my flesh and spirit for the first time in my life, no conflict between my head and heart. I was following the path of mayat, balance. I was living based on principles, divine laws. Spirituality is the recognition that things we cannot see are as essential and life-altering as the things we can see. For me, it includes the acceptance of universal truths. These ideas have been believed for millennia and are often verified by science. Like, but not limited to, number one, there is a source, there is order in the universe. Number two, we are eternal. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. Number three, we are energy. And that energy can attract and repel things, situations, and people. Number four, emotions and thoughts and words can both harm and heal. Number five, balance, rest, and stillness are essential in life as are actions. Number six, you should treat others as you want to be treated. Number seven, actions have consequences. Number eight, the mind has the power to change reality. Number nine, worry, fear, and stress should be replaced with peace, expectancy, and detachment. Number 10, know thyself, be true to thyself. Number 11, both solitude and community are important. Symmetry. I am made in the image of the goddess, the universe, the source. Good and evil, light and dark, cold and hot, yin and yang, balance. And it feels good good to embrace the dichotomy it feels right more right than 30 years of abrahamic faith hating my flesh crucifying my desires finally I understand faiths that cause believers to be at war with themselves cannot cause them to live in peace with others some call this the conscious community I couldn't tell you if I was a part of that or not. I rubbed shoulders with them, but I had one teacher, Baba, who had taught them. What did they believe? I didn't know. It wasn't important. Unlike Christianity, 
There was no need to proselytize and make every other faith wrong. There was the Creator. We were the children of the Creator. We were all here to bring beauty, harmony, and communion within and without. That simple, that inclusive. Universal truths like those below were available to all. Number one, everything begins with thoughts. Thoughts become things. Changing thoughts and attitudes can alter one's lifestyle and future. The law of mentalism. Number two, the law of correspondence. Spiritual, mental, and physical reality are connected. The outer reality reflects the inner reality. Number three, the law of polarity. Life is balanced. Good and evil, yin and yang, hot and cold, up and down. In between the poles, I exist. I can focus on either the good or the evil. What I focus on is strengthened. Number four, the law of vibration. All is energy. Emotion, matter, and thought are all energy. Energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. Number five, the law of rhythm. Life moves in cycles. What goes up must come down, peaks and valleys. Life is like a pendulum swinging. When it reaches the farthest arc, it moves in the opposite direction. Wisdom is about knowing when you're high, enjoy it, and plan for the low. And when you're low, remember it won't last forever and plan for the high. Number six, the law of sowing and reaping or the law of cause and effect. What is sown will be reaped. Every effect has a cause. Everything happens according to universal laws. Number seven, the law of process. Results are rarely instantaneous. Most things have a gestation or incubation period. If you want the results, you must sacrifice and be consistent during the process. There are only two reasons for failure. You quit or die. But the strange thing about change is the world didn't change with me. There were still the same dating sites with the same people asking the same questions and eventually halt led me back there. I went to a Weight Watchers meeting once and the facilitator said halt. We generally make poor decisions and found it challenging to stick to an eating plan if we got too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I was notorious for H, L, and T. Those eventually led me back to the dating trail. My H was a certain hunger. I wrote about it six pages ago. It seemed there was not enough spirituality in the world to silence it. Then there was the L and the T. Weight Watchers warned that any of these was enough to start and fuel a binge. Two or more could derail one's progress altogether. I had three alive and active for months. I sat in that Weight Watchers meeting, not thinking about food any longer, but about men, my track record, and how it seemed an eternity since Ace had left. Let the dates begin. Lesson nine, imagine, turn up your heart's radio, blast your inner stereo loud.